Welcome to System and Soul, the podcast focused on the human energy that runs your business. I'm Chris White, along with my co-host, Benj Miller. All right, you guys ready? Here we go. Jake, drop that beat. Three, two, one. guys are in for a treat today. We got Dr. Jerome. I am not even going to attempt to introduce this guy. I'm going to let him do it for himself because he is just literally like so many awesome things that I love and enjoy wrapped into one beautiful human being. Uh, we're going to get into to what's on his mind today, which is really uh, in his practice, shifting from healthcare to human care, but man, do the lessons in there apply to all of our business, regardless of industry. And uh, we're going to be, he's going to talk about what it means to be taken care of, which is for him, it's a, we get into culture, we get into uh, the lost art of the journeyman process, you know, coming up with the, as an apprentice and, and through that journey and what that looks like in businesses and the opportunities that can unlock for us in our businesses and in our personal growth as well. And then um, how, you know, most of all, we, we, can't, uh, we can't compromise. And so knowing what's most important and really having some tools and frameworks in place to make sure that those stay true. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. Um, I, I think it could have gone on for a full day, but uh, we'll, we, we got it down to about 30 minutes for you. So I hope you enjoy. Let us know what you think. Send us a note um, because this is a fun one. All right, System and Soul, we are here with Dr. Jerome. I've been looking forward to this one for a while, and we're going to do our best to um, keep it at a at a language and a level that everybody can understand because this brother can go deep. Dr. Jerome, I'm not even going to try to introduce you uh, because you are like an amalgamation of many different things. So yeah. would you introduce yourself to our listener out there? Yeah, man, I, I'd love to. I'll, I'll give you the the running joke that either sounds like the start to a bad, unproduced movie or just my life, <laughs> uh, which is that I'm a South African-born Congolese refugee immigrant kid born to Zimbabwean parents who moved to the States in the early 90s. I've had 26 addresses, went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school. I have an identical twin brother, an undergraduate degree in digital animation, special effects production, musician full-time before realizing as a patient Nobody knew how to take care of folks like me, so I became a doctor. I uh, ended up specializing in what's known as functional neurology, so I'm like a personal trainer for the brain. Uh, but what I end up doing is just helping people to find safer and healthier ways to function as human beings. Uh, I have my 17-year anniversary with my wife next month. Uh, I am 38 going on 39, so that means we got married young. I got three kids that are six and under and a 30-year-old, which is my wife's younger brother that we raised when we were still babies ourselves. Uh, so long story short, man, is I've had a lot of different spaces and a lot of different places that I've navigated, but literally every aspect of my life is having a lot of questions that didn't have a lot of great answers. And everything that I've done is just trying to get some clarity and some groundedness and some traction in the things that just kept coming up short as a person, as a patient, as a provider, as a parent, as a partner, all of those things in there. So. That's what I do, man. I just help people get some some clarity on the questions that they're asking and hopefully some traction. 
And that is what we are all about here. And I think everybody's like understanding why we're, why I was hesitant to introduce you because you did such a brilliant job, but we always start with like, what's a super interesting fact about you? And you rattled off like 24 in three sentences. So I think we can skip that. And there's a million things I want to ask you about related to your story, but that's not the format. So we're going with, uh, you know, what are the top three things that Dr. Jerome is thinking about processing these days when you, when you find your mind wander in the professional sense, like what are the things that, that you're thinking about? Yeah, man. It's, uh, there are three things that come to mind pretty quick for me. One is how can I shift the landscape of healthcare into human care and take care of people holistically as a clinician and a provider? Uh, how can I do that in a way that builds a business that, and more than anything, builds a culture that values team members and outcomes above all else? And it's not just a people over profit piece, but it's a culture that in the world that I live in doesn't really feel enticing. People don't like their doctor and they don't want to go to their doctor. So one is shifting from healthcare to human care, but then building a culture that feels like people want to be taken care of. They feel like they are being taken care of. So it's a human care piece from the the patient perspective, but then the culture piece from the business perspective of building an industry that really fosters mentorship and apprenticeship and, and growing the next generation of doctors into people who are better than their predecessors. Uh, and then the third thing uh, would be how to do that without compromising my own family or self-care, that I am not going to prioritize my patients, my vision, or my team above my own family. Um, and I think, you know, coming back to all the P's, it's, this is a conversation around priority because you can't actually have priorities. It's a 20th century word. <laughs> you can't right, have right. the most important thing. So the things that are on my mind right now, man, is, is human care, it's culture in, in changing industry, uh, and then it's doing that without sacrificing or compromising my relationship with myself, my spouse, or my kids. So let's talk about that first one, because the shift from healthcare to human care, that feels like something that's easy to go. Yes, we should do that. Right. Like it, it mm-hmm. feels obvious. You're probably not going to make any enemies saying that, but what would yeah. that really take? What are like the things in the system that are blocking that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting, man. The thing that I tell people most of the time is it's not how much you do right. It's how little you do wrong. Uh, from parenting to business to healthcare, whatever the case may be. And I think the easiest thing is to first just look at what's not working, right? Like most of us, when we start our own businesses or we get into new relationships, the thing that informs us the best is what we don't want to do. We want to stop having happen, right? Um, so in a healthcare world, man, there's there, it's so easy. It's such low-hanging fruit to go, what isn't working, Right. We look at that situation and go, I can clearly say as a patient, I didn't feel heard by my provider. So how do we do that? Well, let's change the length of time that it takes to do an entrance exam from seven minutes to an hour. What does it look like to have a continuity of care after I leave where I have questions? Let's take text message, phone call, and email off the table in terms of a billable service and say, if you have a follow-up, we've got a team that can answer that question for you. When you get confused about what to do at home, you don't need to wait three months to book a consult for a provider to ask a question about, was it 10 reps or 12 reps? I don't remember. 
right? So getting some of the obvious things out, and the reason I call it human care is healthcare is so silo-driven in terms of systems that everything's become hyper-specialized and hyper-subspecialized that getting a referral for your referral for your referral <laughs> right. ends up putting you into a situation where it's just really hard to get taken care of. A human being is comprehensive and complex. And one of the phrases that I use is just because it's complex doesn't mean it has to be complicated. Uh, so I think it's it's looking at the whole person as a complex system, like an orchestra, but not overcomplicating the things where I got to make 12 stops just to get to the answer or just get to the right question that might not even breathe the right answer. So it's shifting some of the, some of the mindsets around things like that. And that's three of a thousand examples that I could give you. <laughs> I was just, I was just listening to a podcast where they were interviewing some of the original people that were involved in starting um, Aetna. And mm -hmm. the, there was some, there was some real genius in the beginning of that organization and the way it came to be and what they figured out early. And it was really cool. But uh, one of the things that they talked about was uh, they dug deep into the complexity of, of insurance and how insurance drives everything. But they said, they said, look, these no, no physician, First of all, they're most of them are horrible at like administrative work. So mm -hmm. like getting reimbursements on healthcare is not anywhere near their wheelhouse. But second of all, they just want to take care of their people. Like right. so I I think physicians, doctors, human care specialists, they go into the field because they have the same probably desire that you do, but then they just get sucked into the gravitational pull. Yeah. Where does that come from? Because everything you just said like feels obvious. Yeah, but it's not, you know, I, it's not. And that comes into moving the healthcare to human care is the interaction with the consumer. But the reason that they get sucked into it is exactly what you're talking about, which is the second thing that's kind of moving around in my head is you want to serve people and you want to connect and you want to offer a product, whether you're a creative, you're a musician, you're a doctor, you're a plumber. You're like, Hey man, there's, there's, there's something that I'm doing with my particular purpose and then instead of being able to work in the business in a way that's meaningful, you're constantly working on the business in a way that feels dry and administrative. And if you're a logistics or an executive director or director of operations, man, that is your wheelhouse. That's great. Yeah. That yeah. puts you into a flow state. But for most people, it's it takes you out of a zone of genius. So one of the to answer your questions, one of the things that ends up happening in that place is you end up getting boxed into this space that drags you into the quagmire quicksand kind of space of how do I make this work as a business? And so much of that is tied to time. It's tied to outcomes. It's tied to practicality, but more than anything, oftentimes, especially exclusively, almost exclusively in healthcare, it's financial. So 10% of the GDP in the U S is financial right? 75% of all prescriptions prescribed on the planet are prescribed to Americans alone, right? It's a very, very financially driven industry. So one of the things that I do in my practice is it's a full cash pay, self-pay, zero insurance model. Now, two things end up happening really quickly with that. And they're the same question, but from two different places, which is how in the world does that work? So business owners will go, how does that work if it's all cash, no insurance? And then patients will end up going, how do I make that work? I don't have that kind of money. And the way that it ends up segueing that makes makes it work is 
you have to work on outcomes, not just evidence-based, but actual outcomes that if you look at the engagement with somebody that you take care of, you can make a manageable and effective change in a period of time that actually saves them money, even with them coming out of pocket. And it's actually a lot easier to do nowadays because a classic example is the cash pay option for advanced imaging oftentimes is cheaper than billing through your insurance and paying your own copay. Yeah. So I've people don't realize that you can ask for a cash pay option and paying out of pocket, even with your insurance sometimes can be cheaper, which is a whole nother conversation <laughs> about right. how to fix the industry, but helping a patient or a family know, Hey, you can actually in the long run, save more money doing this option because it means you're really invested because it's going to cost you something. I'm really invested because I know you can't stay here for that long. Money doesn't grow on trees. So it shoves the outcome and the results into the, into the driver's seat. And then for me, I don't wake up any morning going, I'm concerned as to whether or not my reimbursements are coming in. I know what my trajectory from my capacity is for the next two years and where I'm at in terms of a client facing model. And with this particular process, man, to be honest, I see 85 to 90 people per year. I don't run a high volume practice and I'm able to do an incredible job saving the families that I work with money and also making an income without ever touching an insurance model. So it's super different than what most providers do. My stress financially is gone and their stress about wasting their money, not getting results is also gone. Yeah. So. Yeah. That second one's really, that's a big one too, because it feels like as the straight consumer with no knowledge of your space, it feels like as many options as there are, we are left to fend for ourselves and figure out like, yes, there's a million experts, but who do I go? Who do I trust? How do I get there? What does it look yeah. like? There's just a million questions. And that's why people end up Googling it and getting the, the Google answer. Absolutely. Right? It's and just, it's one of the reasons because a huge part of it is so much of what happens, and you can look at this in really any, any industry, right? Like I, I, I have an incredible amount of friends who are photographers, cinematographers, videographers, artists, musicians, whatever the case may be. And so often when you're cultivating something that is a, a product or a service that you need to exchange with somebody, it's really, really hard to establish your value to somebody who doesn't know what your offering is. It's just not easy to take somebody who's completely unfamiliar with your offering and to build in the value to the degree that you feel the value exists, right? That's, yeah. that's the economy of exchange kind of piece. So How have you bridged that gap? Yeah. There are two things that I do that are unique to the practice that I think actually work. Three things that I do that are unique to the practice that I think you can actually apply in any industry um, is one, I take the upfront sunk cost of vetting people upfront very intentionally. What that means is that my executive assistant and patient concierge will spend anywhere from 15 to 60 minutes with the average person because her volume is manageable enough because we're not flooding our doors with people. We don't market. It's a hundred percent referral. Sure. But what ends up happening is one, it's a hundred percent referral. So you got to be good at what you do and you got to make, you got to get results. So people will actually refer. That's part of it. Make sure your acumen and your skill set is high enough that you actually get results. But if it's 100% referral, when somebody comes in, I don't let you just book an appointment with me. We go anywhere from 15 to 60 minutes to make sure that we're a good fit. And I pay my executive assistant and patient concierge to do the work of making sure that you are even right for us. 
So not only is it a referral, so you have an understanding before you call, but then the second thing is, is we make sure to take our time at our expense, paying that employee to make sure that you're a good candidate. And then when we figure out if you're a good candidate, I require that you put down a 25% non-refundable deposit, not because I want your money, but I want to know that before you've even walked in the door, have you put the time and effort and energy and investment into going, this is worth it for me? And if you're not willing to get on the schedule and say, hey, I'm holding that, especially when I tell you I've got a four to six month wait list that I can't put you on in the hopes that you'll come. So by the time somebody walks through the front door, they've already been referred by somebody who's built value in it. They've been vetted and somebody spent time making sure that they're relevant for our space and they're a good candidate at our expense. And then we said, hey, man, if this is right, I need you to put your money where your mouth is because it's actually going to be a lot harder to do the work when you get here than you think. And I need to see if you're even willing to commit to it a little bit now. And then let's see what happens. So by the time somebody shows up, especially if there's been a four to six month wait to start, man, they're so invested and they're so committed and they're so bought in, then it's my job to show up and make sure that I can actually offer what we've said we think we can based on those previous conversations. Yeah, you've absolutely elevated yourself to rock star status at that point. So you, you've got to be able to deliver. I have to. And that's the thing. I, I'm awake at three o'clock in the morning every morning because the way that I'm wired as a person who's been a patient for 20 years. And I tell people this all the time, man, if I had been a single clinician who was as bothered about the stuff that I was going through, I think I would have actually got some results. Yes. When people come yeah. through the door, I am as bothered as they are about what they're going through that I'm not going to be satisfied if I can't make an impact in them, they've already made the effort. And about 70% of the pe people who come to see me come from out of state. So my God, man, somebody's taken 10 days out of wow. their life, traveled, adjusted their schedule, brought family members, spent all of this money. There, There's so much expectation. And that's my story. I mean, I went to 21 specialists over nine years and spent a hundred grand to get a diagnosis. No one knew how to even pronounce, Never mind, do anything well. <laughs> so I sure as hell don't want to put people into a situation that they walk into my office and I'm not closer to helping them. Well, I'm, right. oh my God, what a waste of time and effort and hope, right? That's, no, I'm, I'm, I'm viscerally opposed to wasting people's time. <laughs> I, this is so, this, there's so many like little nuggets that people can draw out and apply to themselves because I can think of a few businesses, even off the top of my head, where they are the absolute masters, the, the specialists. But when you're in a, you know, just a bloody mess of competitors that all look the same and sound the same, most of the, it's, it's the race to the bottom, right? You know, you're trying to find one little differentiator that actually gets you the appointment or gets you the conversation or, you know, and you're, you're putting up walls to establish that credibility, not racing to the bottom. And, and I think that, no. um, there, we just, we can accidentally race to the bottom without stopping to think about it. So I love the intentionality of how you thought about your practice and how you married the vision that you saw with how can I make it work? Right. And that's what, that's what visionaries do. They see the problem in the market and they say, how can I fix it? whatever it takes, take away all the paradigms. And I love that. Hey everybody, Benj Miller here. And I just launched something I'm really excited about. It's called the 261. As leaders, we have 261, maybe more things bouncing around in our head, things we've learned, things we know we're supposed to do, things we're trying to remember to be the intentional leaders that we wanna be. We put them on a calendar, mapped them out. There's 261 business work days in the year 
And so we're going to send you an email every day with one micro thought, micro action to keep moving the ball forward in your personal life as a leader and for the sake of your business. So will you join us? Go to the261.com and just sign up. Give us your email. It's free. You can unsubscribe if you hate it, but I think you'll enjoy the clarity that comes from just one thing a day to pay attention to, question to ask, a thought, an action, an exercise, just one simple thing a day. Here we go. See you soon. So that takes us to to the culture. You kind of touched on it a little bit. One of the words you said in there is a, is a culture of apprenticeship, which I think has been lost almost the the blue collar journeyman process that we used to have. We've replaced with a a cheap imitation of theory in the classroom. So I don't know if that's a part of that. Maybe that's just my soapbox, but tell me tell me where your mind when you go when you go to that piece. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I have a, I have a natural confirmation bias in this. And I think this is also one of the things that's tied in is most of us aren't succeeding because we're not taking time to be aware of our confirmation bias and what's motivating and driving us instinctively. Uh, and one of my fluencies is when we moved to the States, my dad was a foundryman and a forge worker. He was a metalsmith and a, and a, and a, and a metal worker. My brothers and I from eight to 14 until a week before my dad passed away, worked in his foundry as employees in the U.S., illegally <laughs> okay <laughs> because my dad had an arrangement that if we worked for him he would feed us so it was a pretty reasonable <laughs> arrangement right um so i grew up in this culture of there's a master trade and a master craftsman who needs to teach you everything that they know in order for you to be able to do what they do but then i get into spiritual spaces or clinical spaces or professional spaces and everybody is am i allowed to curse sure Okay. Everybody's so damn, it's not a big word, but everybody's so damn um, protective of their stuff, right? We live in the world yeah. where it's like, you're, you're so, there's so much selfishness and fear. It's really based in fear, which is, I can't teach you everything that I know because I'm afraid that you're going to steal something from me. But if my culture is built on relationship building and connection and rapport with my patient before outcomes, it's dependent on outcomes, but it's predicated on rapport and relationship. I've told the resident that works for me, man, you are more than welcome to try and take any of the patients that work with me with you whenever you graduate from this residency program, because you're going to have to be very, very good for them to trust you to be able to do what I do for them clinically. And here's where it's a win-win. If you are able to take a patient with you and, I, I, and you're not good at what you do, then I've failed and I need to know that. Or that patient isn't for me, they're for you. But realistically, if I'm building a culture where I'm helping to cultivate a place where I want you to be better than me, then if a patient goes with you when you move, that means that you're the right person for them and I've trained you enough that you're equipped to take care of them. Or the patient's in a space where they're like, I can't go with you. I don't think you're as good as Dr. Jerome yet. So we're building in all of these competency-based models that in most industries, there's a, there's a really interesting model that we won't go into now, but I'll just give you the cue for it if anybody wants to look it up. But there's a lot of really good Canadian healthcare systems that are built on what's called CBD or competence 
by design, which is you can't matriculate through things based on your academic testing. You have to matriculate through it based on your competency. So I want to build a culture that's constantly cultivating competency, that somebody's as good, if not better than me, because that's the point of mentorship. That's the point of apprenticeship. I am not there as a disciplinarian. I'm there as a mentor. I'm there as a teacher. But I'm doing that because I don't have the fear that this person's going to take my money or my patience because I'm not living off of that much scarcity. If I'm right. so, if I'm afraid that one of my mentees is going to take something from me intellectually or financially, then I probably don't have enough margin to take on either mentally, emotionally, physically, or financially. I don't have enough margin to teach somebody at this point anyway. So that's something I got to do my own work before I try to invest in somebody else. So uh, uh, tell me what, so what does Dr. Jerome get out of that relationship? You as the sensei, master, journeyman, you know, what, what do you get uh, in return? Yeah, I think it's looking at it as an investment strategy, right? Whenever you invest in something up front, you're going to have a lot of sunk costs. It's going to hurt building the business, investing in all that stuff. It feels like you're losing a lot. That's, that's honestly part of the upfront of it. But what ends up happening is as you start to see that thing grow, and I start to see my resident taking on clients. I'm not only in the minimum, minimum, just basic sheer, sheer mechanics of it. Is he taking financial? Is he bringing revenue in that compensates for his salary? So I'm at a break even. But then we're starting to generate more income that's actually supporting my financial bottom line. But for me personally, the two main reasons that I brought on a resident, because you got to understand your motivation. Some people are money motivated. I'm not. Now I make good money and I'm able to bring in revenue, but the reason I'm doing it is not because I need my bank account to be bigger, right? The reason that I'm doing it is I need this person to be able to take care of people the way that I take care of them because that's a legacy piece for me that matters to me. But also as a self-care practice, if I need to step away from my practice without compromising the care of the people that I'm taking care of because I'm stewardship driven, I want these people to have the value that I've created if I can't serve them. I have to train this guy well enough to not only bring in money to cover his salary, but be good enough, or this woman, if I have a, a female doctor or the person that's coming in, I have to have them be good enough to actually fill in for me if I can't make it. Yeah. And for instance, last year, I had over 100 migraines last year, individual unique migraines. I, had a, I had, did not have a single headache-free day last year. So when I'm sitting in my clinic and out of 365 days, I don't have a single day that is headache free and I don't miss patients because I can't and I don't want to sustain that. It's not sustainable. Am I in a situation where I've created somebody who's effective enough that if I'm having a really bad day, I can go home and lay down? Yeah. So what I'm building in is not whether or not I can buy a new car. It's whether or not I can go home and lay down, yeah. right? Yeah. Because I'm still a patient every day I wake up. That's why I'm known as a patient doctor. So for me, a lot of it, man, is just the, what I get out of it is opportunity. I get the opportunity to take a deep breath. I get an opportunity to practice self-care. I get an opportunity to teach and mentor. Uh, so it's building in the, the things that I'm motivated by and hopefully having more opportunity to do those things. I think it's your clarity on those things. The answer to that question for you, able to have those buckets defined that's allowed you to actually create that. I think one of the ways that most leaders get in trouble that I see is, is they, they can't really articulate. I think a lot of it comes down. You could use that word opportunities that you say. I think that that mean that's almost universal, but what those opportunities look like and what they mean for different people are so different. And so we have the ability to get whatever we want. Most people don't know what we want. So I think it's your clarity in that, that answer 
I'm so glad I asked you that just to hear your, your clarity right there. But the, you know, the, the opportunity for you to know that allows you to create a design in your business that supports that. The other thing I want to call out because I've run into this multiple times in the last week, I think one of the reasons that leaders uh, create frustration in their own business and in their own way is that scarcity mindset that you're talking about where if I teach them to do it, then I won't be important anymore. Especially when we've come up as a technician or a clinician, we are the person that does the thing. And now we are asked to be a leader and a manager to not do those things feels like, well, well, that's how I've gotten my value for years is by doing those things. So yeah. if some, if I'm teaching somebody else to do those, then I've lost that thing that gave me value and self-worth. And man, that's yeah. the biggest opportunity I see for individual breakthrough that leads to organizational breakthrough lately. Hey, podcast listeners, System and Soul Coach Bill Green here. I'd like to share an S2 tip with you today as I work with clients to help them gain clarity and control. Today's tip is designed to help you get into a strong weekly sync cadence right out of the gate. Schedule a virtual call as soon as possible after your first weekly sync meeting coming out of your Clarity Day 1 session. There will likely be some loose ends or questions around the foundational tools. Have the S2 coach model the virtual session as an actual weekly sync meeting from the check-in through the cadence of scoreboard, objectives, and actions from day one, opportunities and obstacles will arise. Drop those items to the opportunities list and lead a DAT session to address them together. Be sure to leave time at the end to commit and conclude and rate the meeting. While the concept of a weekly sync meeting seems simple enough, executing on it, especially if great meetings haven't been your thing, can be challenging at first. Modeling the simplicity of the weekly sync early will lead to mastery. Hope this helps you and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Let's drive that to your third thing that you were talking about of, of how you're not going to compromise yourself in the process. So I'm going to challenge you with your own words. What is your priority? If there is only one and can only be one, what is it? Yeah, it's interesting, man, because as soon as you ask that question, I know what the answer is, but I'm so resistant to say it because it's a, it's, it's something that I've worked on for a decade that I've had to make priority for the sake of everything else, but it's so counter instinctive and counterintuitive to the way that I'm wired. Hmm. So I'll tell you the answer and then I'll backfill why yeah. it's the answer. Um, but my priority has to be me. Um, and the reason I say that is, the I tell people all the time, the healthiest thing that you can do for your family, your community, and those you serve is be the healthiest version of yourself. And the reality is I have worked through decades of trauma as a patient, as a person. Uh, I've been married almost 17 years. Uh, I've got a lot of things that are going on that can compromise my world. And the way that I am personally wired is to serve other people. I don't do a self-centered approach. It's not my personal wiring. So if I prioritize everything around me at the sake or the sacrifice of my ability to even maintain some modicum of health, then it's not a question of if, but when I won't be here anymore. And this is coming from a person who has a history of suicide attempts. I've attempted twice and it wasn't successful, thankfully, pre-kids. So knowing that about my history, knowing that I have a bias towards anxiety and depression and panic attacks and mental health, that my priority at this point has to be at the tip of the spear 
Am I compromising my fuel supply and compromising my integrity and out of alignment for what I'm saying for self-care? And as a result, it's creating this collateral damage around me for everything that I'm connected to because I have a pretty significant sphere of influence. And if I don't show up and I or I show up in an unhealthy way, it impacts a lot of people in unsafe ways. So my priority is my health at this point. And then the things that come into contact with that uh, subsequently are, are my, my wife second, my kids third, and then everyone else that I serve after that. Because if those first few buckets, and even maybe at the null point is my, my, my anchor in a spiritual space, um, that's still a relationship that's, ha that's happening inside of me. If, the, if myself, my wife, and my kids are cared for, man, I show up in ways at work where I'm, I'm overflowing. I'm not on empty at that point. Um, so those, those tend to be really, really helpful ways to lead or lean into um, the places that I show up in business. I resonate with that deeply. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I, yeah. I think a lot of people would want to be able to give that answer or might even give that answer. But if you looked at their calendar and phone notifications and you know and where their energy actually goes it would tell a different story so I, um what are what are some of the ways that you maybe from a very tactical practical level make sure yeah. you make that true yeah, it's great, man. I mean, it's a good question because for everybody listening, I want you to really know this that, you know, nobody wants a hero. They just want a believable example they can follow. Right? <laughs> so it's like, this is not something where I'm communicating this so quickly and so transparently because I'm so good at it. Right. It's that I'm so aware of when I'm not and I'm so intentional about getting closer to that. This has also been like you see somebody who makes it big in music and you're like, oh, man, overnight sensation that practiced for 15 years in bars where nobody was listening. OK, right. so me being successful in this is not that I'm successful every single time. And if you guys hear some background noise for supporting somebody who's non-speaking and pretty intense from a self-harming standpoint, so you might hear some background noise. My clinician is taking care of them today. Um, but it's a, a couple of really practical, tactical things that I do is one, I had to learn where, what was interfering or compromising my self-care the most. Because I think a lot of the times we're like, hey, let's do more. And that's like saying, hey, I'm going to get a pay raise. If I had more money, I could do better. No, you wouldn't. What the issue is, is that you're not taking a look at what is compromising your resources in the first place. It's not about having more resources. It's about more effectively using the resources you already have. So if you want more margin, don't make more money, spend less, right? What is causing you to hemorrhage your resources? For me, what was causing me to hemorrhage resources in a self-care standpoint is I'm not good at saying no. It's a four-letter word for me. It's pretty vulgar. It's not my gift. So one of the practical things that I ended up doing is saying, okay, what is my hourly rate? And if I hired somebody for that amount of money for five of my hours, how many hours could I buy for them? So I'll give mm -hmm. it transparently and practically, okay? I'm $400 an hour as a clinician. So if I did five hours of work, that's $2,000. If I hired somebody for five hours a week at $20 an hour, right? I just bought 100 hours of work. Is that right? Is that math right? Sure. Yeah, we'll go with it. I'm not great at math, but I can do basics. Okay. <laughs> so $20 an hour is an executive assistant. My five hours buys me a hundred hours of yeah. executive assistance. So do I want to spend five hours trying to manage things that I'm not skilled at, that I should have said no to? 
So not only do I hand off the administrative non-skill based things to somebody that can support me, but the main reason that I got the executive assistant assistant was not as an administrator for non-skill based work. It's I needed a gatekeeper to say not yet or no because I would overcommit. So if it's a scheduling piece, if it's a clinical piece, if you have to get onto my calendar, for instance, in this case in point, it's been a 10-year journey. I'm finally getting better at it. I didn't know who, wh- wh- what was happening today until my EA was like, hey, don't forget you got a one. I knew I had a one o'clock. But in terms of the whole construct of our call today, the whole construct of scheduling and organizing, say, even saying yes to it, I didn't have to do any of that. Somebody else was my yes. Yeah. So the practical thing that I would say is one, if you are doing non-skill based work, figure out what your hourly rate is and hire somebody to do that for you. Even if it's only five hours a week, it will free up your resources tremendously and you won't be so much out of gas. Two, if you're not good at saying yes, get a gatekeeper. If you're terrible at saying yes, find somebody who can support you in that. Figure out what your relationship is with yes and no, and you might need an intermediary who can also be that executive assistant. And then the third thing I would say from an investment standpoint, the most difficult thing that I've experienced, man, and this comes from a whole family of origin, spiritual origin space, growing up in in churches that I grew up in, is there's an expectation that you're just going to show up and be so good at whatever it is that you're trying to do. 21 days to a better you. Man, 21 days, your brain hasn't even figured out if it's a relevant conversation yet. If you change something too fast, your brain will actually reject it. That's why when you get an organ transplant, you spend the rest of your life being on medication to make sure your body doesn't give that organ the middle finger. It's very hard to change things very quickly. Your body will reject it outright. So the thing that I always communicate to myself and to patients and to people that I'm working with, especially in business, is globally... The idea or the approach of three to five percent improvement year over year is tremendously helpful mm. because if and somebody freeing. told me, yeah, if somebody had told me twenty years ago when my wife and I started our relationship, we're about to have a seventeen-year marriage anniversary, twenty years of being together. If somebody had told me twenty years ago, hey man, try five percent every year, just go for five percent. After twenty years, do you know how much better I would be than the nineteen-year-old version of myself? I'd be a hundred percent better. And what ended up happening is like, ah, it should just be twice as good as a dad or twice as good as a business owner. 50% improvement this year. We look at, if you looked at that in raises or investment strategies, any single thing that you do that's going to get you a 50% gain in a short period of time is probably illegal. Okay. <laughs> probably also not helpful or healthy or sustainable. Yeah, right. So true. But if you're doing something that has compound interest and you're like, Hey man, I'm going for 5%. That's my benchmark. This year we had 11. Last year we had two, but three to 5% improvement as a human being year over year with the idea of compound interest is very manageable and very approachable. And then I'm going, okay, how am I protecting that space in my scheduling and my level of commitment and my type of self-care? I'm just going three to 5% take a deep breath, get support and make sure in all of those spaces that I can go, Oh yeah, I, I, I probably am I'm not aware of this in the first place. So maybe I start with asking questions about what I don't even know that I don't even know. Right. That's so beautiful, man. I, I usually wrap up asking, you know, what's one piece of wisdom, but I, I'm not even going to ask because we need to just let that soak in and end on that. Dr. Jerome, thank you so much for lending your presence and wisdom to us today and please tell us where we can find out for you and and who who even who should like look you up to get on your wait list yeah you know I, well i tell people i tend to specialize in complex unresolved cases 
So I tell people when they come in and when they first come in, I'm sorry that you're here and I'm glad that you're here because if you're here, it means something's probably gone pretty bad. It's gone pretty wrong. Um, you don't really want to speak easy. That's a doctor. Right? <laughs> um, but from a healthcare standpoint, I would say if you're dealing with something really complex that no one's really been able to figure out, like movement disorders, head injury, nonverbal autism, we tend to specialize in cases that haven't got a lot of traction. If you're above ground and you're breathing, I can help your brain work better. Um, but from the client side of things, not the patient side of things, we work with uh, professional brain coaching and executive coaching um, and all of these different services for just helping your brain work better. If it's performance enhancement or it's triage and recovery, depends on where you're at. We customize everything very specifically to what somebody needs. Um, but the best way to find out more about what I do is just drjerome.com, just D-R-J-E-R-O-M-E.com. Uh, and that talks about my work around the brain-based Enneagram, around self-care, around clinical spaces, content. And then if you want to hear more, uh, we also have links for podcasts where I've, I've done about 150 podcasts over the last four years. Um, and one easy way to find all of those is just go to listen notes for anybody who doesn't know what listen notes is. It's an aggregator for podcasts. So if you just Google listen notes and you put my name in the search bar, it'll show you all the podcasts I've been on across the worldwide web. Uh, That's really cool. I didn't know about that. And I can't believe we got through uh, a whole conversation without going deep into the Enneagram rabbit hole, which I love to do, (laughs) but we'll save that for another conversation. This means we need another one. Yeah. Hey, I really enjoyed our time together. I appreciate the chance to be with you, man. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a gift, dude. All right.